Duncan Wilshire, uh, a trustee director here at 2020 Trustees, and I'm joined by Andre Kerr from XPS. Uh, Andre, do you want to introduce yourself? Yeah, hi, I'm Andre Kerr from XPS. I'm a partner in the investment team. I uh, have two roles at XPS. Uh, one is providing advice to traditional advisory DB and DC pension schemes, but also probably the main role I'm here to talk about today is I head up XPS's fiduciary management oversight team. So helping schemes select and oversee fiduciary managers. Uh, the reason I head up that team at XPS is I spent five, uh, four years at Willis Towers Watson working in their fiduciary team. So I'm really poacher turned gamekeeper, uh, allowing me a really good insight into challenging what they do and really understand the nuts and bolts of what should be going on. Great. Thanks, Andre. And yeah, I think that's that's what's hopefully quite interesting here. We've been engaging with a number um, of fiduciary managers over the last few weeks uh, at 2020 Trustees um, and have had all sorts of interesting conversations with them. Um, no doubt you have as well. And so hopefully over the course of this podcast, we can kind of explore some of the things that have come out of those those um, conversations. Um, so I guess just to kind of kick us off, um, Andre, how do you think FMs have coped generally over the last few weeks? So I think there'd probably be an expectation in the industry that fiduciary managers would have coped better than advisory models during all this crisis with meeting collateral calls, etc. Because under a fiduciary model, the fiduciary manager is responsible for the day-to-day -day management of the investment. So selling out of assets, sending it to the LDI managers to meet collateral calls, that should all be happening automatically. Whereas under an advisory model, trustees perhaps may have been involved in having to sign forms at short notice so those monies could be sent to preserve their hedges. Um, so from a, a governance point of view, the FM model should have been better because it involves less involvement from the trustees. But operationally, I think there's been a big difference in how some fiduciary managers have operated. Some fiduciary managers, because of their choice of LDI manager, had trading suspended on their funds and for a short period of time had levels of hedging cut or, or reduced, as advisory clients who use those LDI managers would have. But I think more interestingly is what's going to happen going forward as we look at liquidity and the ability to meet future calls. So I think in the initial sort of guilt yield rise before the Bank of England intervention, most fiduciary managers had sufficient liquidity in their portfolios to be able to meet calls and keep client hedges on, where the LDI managers still allow trading to continue. Yeah, and, and so I think, well, would you say it's, it's more difficult to kind of classify people rather than if they used LDI manager A, their experience was like this, and if they used LDI manager B, their experience was like that. Can you classify it like that or is more complicated? I think you can classify it in, in some ways like that, um, where it was completely taken out of the control of the fiduciary manager. Um, but I think if we look at what's happened since the Bank of England intervention with increased collateral buffers in LDI funds um, and lower levels of leverage, that's really stretched portfolios. And I think this is where we're seeing a, a divergence in approach from fiduciary managers in how they manage hedges and how they manage portfolios going forward. Yeah. And I guess there's that third category. I mean, I'm oversimplifying it, manager A and manager B, but there are those who um, 
manage LDI in-house as well. So um, is, have you had any views or feedback as to whether that's been easier or more difficult than where it's been um, delegated to the investment managers? Yes, I think they've had more visibility, more control internally as an organisation. And you're absolutely right that there are fiduciary managers that are either asset managers who have LDI businesses. So it's been very easy for them to, to move the money around. Um, but they also sometimes use external managers. You have fiduciary managers that have their own, own trading ability to do LDI. Um, and I think they've had a lot more flexibility. But also you have the fiduciary managers that are the traditional consultants that are reliant on third parties, both for the growth assets and also the LDI and other matching assets. And I think that's where their operational control and their trading systems have really had to be really robust to make sure they can move monies from one manager, one part of the portfolio to another, because there isn't that simple pass through from an asset manager's growth fund to an asset manager's LDI fund. So the big yeah. difference in approach, and I think that's that's where trustees, when making an appointment for a fiduciary manager, really need to understand, actually, how is how are my monies going to be invested? What does that look like? Uh, and we can sort of come more onto that when we look at sort of things like liquidity. Yeah, well, I guess that was going to be my question, really, which is, do you think trustees have historically looked at the operational side of things enough when appointing their to their FN? I mean, it's probably the slightly less sexy side of, of investing, but um, yeah, just keen to get your views on that. Yeah, so I think it's it's something that gets looked at. Um, and I think it's something that a third party evaluator would help give an assessment on. Um, but it's really at times of stress when operations really come into their own. Um, and it's also looking at how a portfolios constructed and what does that mean? Um, because different ways of constructing portfolios will have different implications going forward. I think it was very easy in a selection where trustees would just look at the asset allocation and just go, these, these two offerings between FMA and FMB look quite similar. But actually, when you unpick it and you, you realise how they're invested, they're fundamentally different. And that could have had significant impact given what we've seen happen in markets recently. And have you been able to quantify any of these differences yet? I know people are talking about um, different outcomes and experiences, but I, I don't think I've seen any kind of holistic performance summary that says actually this is kind of where people have landed. Yes, I think I think it's going to take a bit of time to come out in the in the wash. I think if you're going through an FM selection now, I think there's some very obvious questions that you could be asking your your fiduciary manager. How do they manage portfolios? How robust are their portfolios going forward to to cater for guilt yield rises and and potential shocks. For schemes that are managing portfolios now, I think after the initial Bank of England intervention, the rules for the levels of leverage in LDI portfolios changed and the amount of, of headroom LDI managers wanted changed significantly. And that meant that you needed a lot more liquid assets sending to the LDI manager. A lot of fiduciary managers in their portfolios had added lots of complexity and lots of illiquidity in the portfolios. 
And I think we're seeing as a result, some of those fiduciary managers aren't able to maintain the same levels of liability hedging as they would have done before the mini budget. And I've seen advice from fiduciary managers saying we need to reduce the hedge. Uh, and we need to reduce the hedge for reasons A, B, and C. I think what trustees need to do is really challenge are fiduciary managers doing this out of necessity because they don't have enough liquidity in the portfolio? Or are they doing it because given the level of leverage in the LDI portfolios to maintain the return that is stated that's needed in the recovery plan, you need to have a low level of hedging? Or is it because they've got a view on where guilt yields will go? And I think that's the, they're the three really important questions that trustees should be asking the FM and the FM should be able to give an answer to all three that's clear and easy to understand. And if the hedge has been reduced, the trustees need to also understand what does that mean in terms of risk? If guilt yields fall, what does that mean in terms of the deficit and the funding level? And as we've seen recently since Friday, guilt yields are down sort of more than 50% at most 10 years, some, in some 10 years over 80 basis points. So a big fall in gilt yields, which would mean if the hedge was taken off, that would have led to a fall in funding level and an increase in the deficit. Yeah, and, and I guess from the trustee side, these sorts of conversations are sort of coming as a surprise to some, insofar as I think, as you said, when you opened up, there's a degree to which trustees were expecting that when they outsourced or delegated this function to a professional body, that actually managed in a way that they wouldn't have to kind of get involved in, in some of these things again. Um, and so I, I think that that has kind of changed the dial for some trustees on, on what they thought that they had bought and, and perhaps they may reevaluate that again, um, especially that point around kind of that advice, like what is advice and what is necessity? I think that that's a really interesting point that you raised because I think certainly we've seen some instances as well where the kind of advice looks sketchy. If it's necessity, then it looks absolutely fine. If it's if it's advice, then it does feel like slightly peculiar advice. Have you any sense of um, you gave those those kind of three categorizations? Have you have you got a sense of of where uh, FMs are landing on that? Are there pe lots of people who are taking views on rates, or is it lots of necessity? I'd I'd say I think the vast majority is necessity because of liquidity in the portfolio or the need that the portfolio needs to generate a return of X. Um, there are a small handful that are, are doing this because of views. Um, and I think that with that, that's a very bold statement because the reason lots of schemes use the LDI in the first place is to hedge what is perceived an unrewarded risk. And I can't see what will have changed in a very short period of time, that changes an unrewarded risk into a rewarded one. And if that decision is wrong, then that potentially could be a huge loss for pension schemes. And are they comfortable with that level of risk? So I think in that case, trustees should be asking, what is the impact if I wanted to retain my hedge? Um, and also looking under the agreement, whether it's the fiduciary management agreement or the investment management agreement, to see what flexibility the fiduciary manager has on setting the level of liability hedging and what discretion they have around the central target. 
Yeah, I think certainly, you know, if if faced with that, I'd probably be thinking about reducing my return expectations, at least for the short term, rather than taking my hedge off at the moment, just just to kind of weather the storm, as it were, for, for a moment of time. Invariably, if you've got a five-year, 10-year um, journey plan, then being below your return target for a little while is, is probably not going to be the worst thing compared to, as you say, the potential for, for yields to go down. And who knows if they're going up or down or whatever else from here. It's obviously been quite, quite difficult to predict, but um, yeah, it, it can have a catastrophic impact, as you say. I think the other thing that we're seeing is um, those changes coming through in guidelines and just guidelines being presented to uh, clients almost without um, real kind of backing. It just says, oh, here's some guidelines and we're changing three things. Just send a return email that says you agree with it. And on the face of it, it might you might say, yes, that's OK. But there's often a bit more to unpick in that. Have you seen any of that? Yeah, I've seen a lot of it. I think it's worth remembering that the investment guidelines are there to limit the flexibility the fiduciary manager has got. So, for example, there'll be guidelines about what percentage they can put in each asset class. So effectively, it protects the fiduciary manager going rogue and deciding we're going to put 100% of assets in emerging market equities. Right? It, it's for the protection. And the, the boundaries in the guidelines are invariably very wide to allow the fiduciary manager lots of flexibility so they can be dynamic and manage the portfolio. Typically, the way, I think the reason a lot of schemes have to limit the guidelines is where they've got asset class restrictions and because where they have a liquid assets, where the pricing has, has held up um, and growth assets have been sold to, the liquid growth assets have been sold to make the collateral calls, that liquid asset becomes a bigger part of the portfolio because also the portfolio now is smaller because the value of the matching assets have gone down. So they might have breached those guidelines. That's a soft breach. That's fine. That's because that asset will take time to rebalance. I don't think that's an issue. Um, there might also be slight issues on the liquidity ladders if they're in. Again, they're probably fine. Some fiduciary management agreements or investment guidelines had dual comments of a target return and the level of hedging. And as we said, the rules on the levels of leverage have changed. So the ability to generate a really high level of return and have a high level of hedging is just not possible anymore. So that's where I think one has to give. And as you say, trying to make a call in the direction of rates potentially seems quite risky, especially when lots of schemes are in a good position. So temporarily having a lower return, waiting for the dust to settle might seem the more prudent option. I think where trustees struggle is where they've been asked to give a lot of latitude on things like the level of hedging, but not understanding what the implication is for that. And I'll give an example. Pre the mini budget, some fiduciary managers would set a target level of liability hedging. And that could have been 100% of assets, or it could have been about 90% of assets, or somewhere in between. They would then have a range around that that they could operate in to make tactical calls but where they saw rates could go. And that tactical call would be maybe plus or minus 10% on that, on that set level, that target. When gilt yields moved around a little bit and gilt yields were really boring and dull and had no, not much volatility in it, that would be a certain level of risk that a scheme could take. Now we see gilt yields moving around plus or minus 70% in a day, more over a month. 
they still have the same bounds they can operate in and actually in some cases have widened it. If they're using the same bounds, the level of risk they can take in that part of the portfolio is five to ten times bigger and becomes potentially more risk in your matching portfolio with the dynamic view from the FM than they can take in the growth portfolio. I don't think that has been really made clear in the advice from fiduciary managers. Yeah, yeah, and I think I've got another slightly different example where um, a client had that target hedge ratio um, and they had some bounds in which they could operate, but the managers now come back and said, actually, we'd like, I think it was between like 0% hedge and the target hedge ratio is what we'd like to operate within. And this particular client didn't have a particular kind of stress in terms of liquidity, felt like they were just going out to a whole bunch of people asking for this um, new flexibility. And on the one hand, the you know trustees are, are tempted to say, well, yes, we trusted you to put this in place and we know it's very challenging times and everything else. But on the other hand, if you kind of look at it through the other lens, you could just, you know, the manager could actually literally make a mistake, accidentally take the entire hedge off and whatever else, and then just almost circle back and say, well, actually, the guidelines say we can operate within this this like flexibility and stuff like that. And I guess you could say that between the plus and minus 10. But now there's just this potential for bad things to happen within a much broader um, uh, set of outcomes than there ever was the case, let alone, like you say, the additional volatility that kind of sits around that. So, yeah, really challenging times. And I think reaching out to the likes of you and to lawyers and what have you is is a pretty helpful thing to do at the moment. Um, so just, I'm, I'm conscious there are a whole bunch of things that we can talk about here, just because so much has um, happened over the last little while. But is there anything else that you're seeing fiduciary managers having to change? We've spoken about kind of how things have kind of moved around and what have you, but it, uh, in terms of asset allocation, in terms of kind of forward thinking, is, is there something that's going to have to fundamentally change here? Yeah, I think so. <clears throat> I'll just add one point to the last question. and. I think it's the point of where you said keeping return versus level of hedging. Where the current level of return to keep the level of hedging could fall below the return needed on the recovery plan, just have a conversation with the scheme actuary yeah. and say, actually, until the dust settles, are you happy that the return is slightly below the recovery plan and that doesn't have an impact long term? I think as long as it's for a finite period of time, most scheme actuaries will be actually quite comfortable with that position. And so, again, it's trustees understanding which lever to pull on and why uh, and saying to the FM, actually, we're happy with a lower return. Let's keep the hedge on for now. We don't and need I'll, to worry about hitting that target. I'll broaden that even further to say, actually, I think one of the most important things that trustees have been able to do through this period is um, stay engaged with your advisors, kind of talk real time but also stay engaged with the sponsor and bring them along with that story as well and get their buy-in into that to say, look, this is difficult times and make sure that, you know, six months down the line, they're not saying what on earth were you doing or anything like that. So yeah, bringing everybody into that conversation is critical. And, and it's probably happened more in the advisory world where because the delegation day-to-day -day management hasn't gone to the FM, that trustees have had a closer dialogue with the sponsor. And in a lot of cases, they said to the sponsor, until we get monies back from these liquid assets that we're selling to give us some extra headroom, could you be there if we get calls to make sure we can preserve the hedge? Or these deficit repair contributions that are getting paid monthly, can we have that as a promise that that could get paid as a single hit if we need to meet calls? And again, 
there's lots of different things that trustees can do to preserve the level of hedging without having to necessarily take it down at a time when no one real was really with certainty can say where where hedging is going to go and where guilt yields are going to go yeah so on, on to your question on things got to change i think there's a couple, a couple of things um we're going to see more liquidity in portfolios i think we're going to see trustees want to do more stress tests i actually think a lot of trustees are going to want a third party to come in and give an independent view of the, the hedging and what risk that does and i think there's a there's probably a, a smaller handful of oversight providers that can actually do that because it requires a certain skill set and capability. Another thing to look at is the difference between a fiduciary manager that invests in individual managers for each client versus one that uses a manager, a manager, or a fund, a fund arrangement. Because some individual funds are funds that have been used for liquidity, not the liquidity of those underlying managers are not all the same. So actually, within the individual funds that are used, the fund of funds, the liquidity might be broken. And that actually might mean that the multi-asset fund of funds looks very different to what the fiduciary manager wants it to be. And it's understanding how long is it going to take for those fund of funds and the portfolios to get back to where they should be? And what risk does that mean going forward? Um, I think it's going to take a long time for some portfolios to get back to steady state. Um, and I think trustees just need to be aware that that could expose them to different risks over the near term. Yeah. And and what about um, fiduciary managers' businesses? So they've uh, lost 30% of their asset base or 40%, whatever the appropriate number is, just through the reduction in size of the liabilities. And therefore, if they're fully hedged, the reduction in the size of the assets. Um, are you hearing anything from them about actually their life has almost become harder and they're having to do that off of a smaller asset base and therefore fee base, or is it all too, too soon to hear those sort of stories? Um, I think we're starting to see that come through. I think some fiduciary managers have, have already tried to push fees up. So my advice to trustees would be, you're not contractually obliged to do that. <laughs> I think I think this is a unique time where trustees have, have a bit more power actually and can say, no, we're happy with the, um, with the fee terms. Some, it will be interesting whether this leads to consolidation of some fiduciary managers because they have a lot of fixed costs in terms of their staff depending on whether all their fees are based on the assets they manage depending on the business mix they've got whether they've got other asset management businesses other consulting businesses how much of their revenue comes from from fixed fees how much is from the the size of assets they manage that will be different business risks um, and ultimately, it might lead to difficulty to retain staff and attract staff if they're under this, this short-term pressure. So I think this is something that will come down as sort of a business risk going forward for some fiduciary managers because the cost of staff, the cost of resource, the, the, their fixed cost of running their business have actually increased. But if all their revenues are coming based on the assets they manage, the assets they manage have gone down significantly. Even if they win new business, they'll still have be generating lower revenues, which could cause some pressures in the short term. Yeah. And and just, I guess, winning new business. Do you think um, any of the recent experiences accelerated some trustees towards FM, those who are uh, exhausted from signing disinvestment forms and, uh, yeah, I guess, have had a pretty easy life up until now, but all of a sudden 
that have found themselves under a high degree of stress? I Yeah, I, I've thought about this quite a lot. I think fiduciary managers will be using it as a marketing tool for schemes to go to go FM, absolutely. But as we've talked about, FMs haven't come out of this unscathed. Right? They've had similar issues and different issues to advisory models. Um, I honestly believe if we'd had this liquidity squeeze for pension schemes and not had the pandemic beforehand and the use of DocuSign, trustees doing teams meeting, ad hoc calls, not wedded to the quarterly meeting cycle, the whole situation would have been significantly worse, especially in the advisory model. I think trustees have almost been battled hardened from what they had to do during the pandemic and got very used to having short notice calls by having to sign documents via DocuSign and other means so they don't have to actually print and, and do that. So it's probably been one thing the pandemic has actually helped this situation. Um, and I do think there are a lot of advisory clients that have probably come out of this in a pretty good situation. Um, they managed to maintain calls of probably are more engaged with their advisors. I think any time of market stress probably tips some schemes over the edge and makes them consider governance models. And I think all trustees should consider on an ongoing basis, is this the right governance model for, for the needs that we face today? The one thing that might be against moving to an FM is a lot of schemes might be in a much better funded position because even through this market turmoil, they're much closer to buyout. So that time frame from where they are now to buy out is much shorter. So is it worth the upheaval of moving to a fiduciary model when you can just lock down risk and have a, a more buy and hold portfolio? I think we'll we'll see. Um, but I think for schemes thinking about FM, it's what are the needs of your scheme? Are you going to get something more by changing by changing model? And as we said, there is no silver bullet to managing a pension scheme. You're, you just have a different model. And ultimately, I don't think there's been any winners. You can't win in this situation, um, generally, especially if you've got hedging. I think it's been a huge issue for every pension scheme in respect of governance models. And it's just about have you come out of it and survived? And are you in a good position rather than actually this, I've done really well out of this. Um, it's just making sure that you've come out of it the other side. And then I think that's the time to reassess. Um I, honestly, I could talk about this all day, and even though I've been <laughs> swamped by it over the last few weeks and, and I'm somewhat tired, I think there are so many things that are still going to kind of come out from, from the cracks and that we're going to find out as time goes on. So no doubt there'll be another opportunity to have a conversation like this. But I wondered if there's just kind of anything that you wanted to, to close with, any final thoughts, any final hints, tips or otherwise for trustees to think about from an FM perspective. So I think the big takeaways for me, as Duncan rightly said, it's engagement. Whilst trustees delegate the day-to-day -day management of their investments to a fiduciary manager, they're still responsible for the investment strategy and monitoring the adherence to it. That can't be delegated away. So really engaging with the trustee on what's going on, especially at times of market volatility. And if the FM is wanting to reduce your hedge for whatever reason, understanding why, is it because you need to for liquidity? Is it because you need to for to keep the same return target or is it because they want to take a tactical view on where rates could go? And asking them, if possible, what's the implication if I wanted to keep my hedge? What do I have to give up? If the hedge is getting reduced, 
what is the risk? What is the impact? What am I exposing myself to? What could that mean if guilt yields fell? What would that mean to the funding level and, and deficit? And finally, I think once the dots are settled, if need be, trustees need to have some mechanism for assessing how the pollution manager did and how they're positioned to move forward. Okay, well, super. Thank you very much, Andre. Um, yeah, thoroughly enjoyed the conversation. And like I say, there may well be opportunities for us to dive into this a little bit further as more uh, information comes out. But thank you very much.